So John chapter 12, beginning at verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Friends, this section in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, comes at a pivotal place, a a turning point in the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, these verses that we're going to take a look at this morning uh, tell us about the end of Jesus' public ministry. From John chapter 13 on, it's all private with his disciples. It's at the cross. It's on the empty, at the empty tomb as well. But please understand that this is the end, as far as the Gospel of John is concerned, of the public ministry of Jesus. And what sets it in motion? Some Greek visitors come to the disciples and say what? Did you notice what they said there in verse 21? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. By the way, isn't that a wonderful thing for anybody to say? We wish to see Jesus. And they came to simply ask him this question. Friends, we don't know exactly why these Greeks came to the disciples. Maybe they were God-fearers, that is, uh, Gentiles who had a great interest in Judaism, but didn't go all the way to conversion. Uh, Maybe they were just tourists. There were a lot of Greek tourists in the ancient world who just wandered around and wanted to see new things. But they had heard something about Jesus. Maybe they had uh, been a part of his teaching or saw something remarkable. They saw enough that they wanted to know more. And so they came to Jesus and simply said, or excuse me, they came to the disciples and simply said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. But before I move on to the next idea, can I just remind you of something very important? Friends, it's good to be curious about Jesus. It is. And I hope that there's many today, if you don't have a a personal connection with Jesus Christ in your life, I hope you're curious about him. God has used just simple curiosity about Jesus Christ to lead many people into his kingdom. It is a good thing and to be encouraged when people are simply curious about Jesus Christ. In any regard, this meeting with the Gentiles, these meeting with this Greeks, caused Jesus to do, Jesus to do something absolutely remarkable. In verse 23, he says very plainly, very boldly, the hour has come. Now, at least twice before in the Gospel of John, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Yet now in the Gospel of John, Jesus proudly proclaims, my hour has come. Now's the time. It's going to get set in motion. Verse 23 The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, I wonder, if you had never read the Bible before and read that one line, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified, what would you think? Maybe you'd think of an awards banquet. You know, it's like the Academy Awards. And, you know, for best prophet of first century Judaism, Jesus of Nazareth. And he comes up and accepts his award, and that's that's how he's glorified. And friends, if you've got any familiarity with the Bible, you know what Jesus means by glorified right there, don't you? He means crucified. How could that possibly be? How could the most shameful, humiliating thing that the Roman mind could think of, crucifixion, how could that be glorification? Friends, Jesus is going to tell us, but I just want you to understand how strange this must have seemed to the people that Jesus first said it unto Going on now, verse 24, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Do you understand what Jesus is explaining? He's explaining probably to those visiting Greeks and to his disciples and to anybody who would hear, this is what I mean by being glorified. I mean by me dying. I am going to die and that is how God is going to work his greatest glory in and through my life. It's going to be like a grain of wheat. Verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, and just as a seed will never become a plant unless it dies and is buried, and so the death and burial of Jesus will be necessary for his coming glorification. Friends, there's never going to be resurrection life unless there's death first. And Jesus is saying, I go to the cross to bear that death. You know, we we say it a lot as Christians, and I hope we say it a lot. It's a good thing to say. We proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. We lift up Jesus on the cross, and we think about his great work there. We should. The Bible tells us to. God wants us to. But sometimes I think we, we forget how strange the whole thing is. Friends, don't you believe that Jesus loved and enjoyed the good things of this life? I fear that some of you have such a strange conception of Jesus that you think he was totally detached from this world. In other words, you know, that he just lived his entire life with his eyes focused on the cross and and ignored everything else. Friends, are you going to tell me that when Jesus of Nazareth held a little baby in his hands, that he wasn't delighted? He'd say, oh, this is the best ever. Are you going to tell me that when Jesus of Nazareth looked at a sunset, and saw those colors light up the sky, like last night. I don't know if you saw it. Don't you think that just, oh, that's great. Matter of fact, wouldn't you say that he probably took a greater joy in that baby and in that sunset because he could say, I helped with that. I created that. I mean, he, he enjoyed the good things of this life. Jesus enjoyed sitting down with friends and just enjoying conversation and the joys of this life. And friends, he didn't just say, well, yeah, this baby's pretty cool, but I'm gonna die. No, Jesus had a proper and legitimate enjoyment of these good things of life. He didn't feel guilty about it. He didn't say, oh, I can't enjoy the sunset because I have to die on the cross. No, 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 but please understand this. Jesus enjoyed the good things of this life But he knew that his life was for more than the enjoyment of the good things of this life. Does everybody understand that? He said, my destiny, the hour is come for me to die, for me to be glorified. For me to lay down my life and sacrifice and to give it to others. For me to impart life to others by giving it for myself. This is my call. This is what God has given me to do. I'll enjoy all the good things of this life, but... I'm going to live for an even higher and greater purpose as well. And they say, well, great, that's good for Jesus. Look at verse 26 with me, please. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. See what Jesus is saying? I'm going this way of realizing that there's something bigger in my life than the enjoyment of the good things of life. 
There's something bigger in my life than that. Here's what it is. It's to lay down my life in sacrificial service and to see God's work further. Let me just lay it down to you, folks. Jesus Christ has come, not only that you would have life and have it more abundantly, yes, that's what he wants you. He wants you to enjoy the good things of life and to do so without guilt. But he wants you to have a purpose for your life that is greater than that. Why? Because that's him. That's following him. You want to serve me? Then serve in this way. You want to follow me? Follow in this way. If Jesus goes to the cross, we follow him. Verse 26, where I am, there my servant will be also. You'll be with me. If you really want to serve me, you'll be right there with me. And you see what a glorious way that Jesus gives us to live? Jesus says to us, yes, here it is. Enjoy it. I give you the baby. I give you the sunset. I give you the good things of your friendships. But live your life for something more. For life with me and the advancement of my kingdom. Verse 27. I'm going to read to the middle of verse 28. It says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour Father, glorify your name. Jesus is considering the death that's there on his horizon and part of him, the the, the human aspect of the being of Jesus Christ. He looks and he goes, look, I don't relish the thought of being nailed to a cross, of enduring the shame and the humiliation, not only physically, but what's more than that? What will happen to me spiritually as I'm on the cross? Because the Bible says that Jesus didn't just die as a noble martyr, There have been many noble martyrs, both in the past and in the present of the world. But Jesus didn't die just as a noble martyr, but as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of humanity. My sin, my guilt, my shame was in some real, albeit spiritual, but just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's not real, in a real way, was placed upon the Son of God as he was nailed on the cross. And Jesus looked at him and goes, that troubles my soul. I don't relish that. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? And Jesus says, no way. I'm not going to pray that. This purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Picking it up in the middle of verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Do you hear what the voice from heaven said? It said, verse 28, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Friends, isn't that beautiful? God the Father, not so much for Jesus' sake, but for the sake of everybody around him, assured him, no, I have done my work in you. I will do my work in you. Jesus, you shall not fail in this great task that is set before you. What an assurance. Again, not so much for Jesus' sake, but for the sake of those around him. And now Jesus, in light of that, speaks some of the most amazing words of our passage to It's right here, verse 31. Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Friends, do you see what he's saying there? Now, verse 31, 
is the judgment of this world. Jesus says that the spirit of this world was judged at the cross. You know, if we understand that the cross represents the epitome, the peak, the top point of God's love for humanity, friends, it also expresses the very lowest point of man's hatred and depravity. God came to earth adding humanity to his deity and all he did was walk around, tell the truth, help people and perform amazing miracles and mankind couldn't wait to kill him. It doesn't get worse than that. But this is what Jesus says. That's gonna be judged at the cross. It'll be exposed for all that it is and people will see and the judgment in it will be inherent there. But not only the judgment of the world, but he says now also verse 32, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The defeat of the world and Satan, the devil, was God's victory and the victory of the people of God. Now friends, we could define this world in the sense that Jesus spoke of it We could define the world in this. It's simply culture in opposition to Jesus. Not all culture is in opposition to Jesus, not by any means. But whatever aspect there is of culture in opposition to Jesus, the Bible calls it the world. And it means it in that sense, oftentimes. You just have to read your New Testament, use a little bit of context there to determine. Is it speaking of the world just in the sense of people in the world? Or is it speaking of it in the sense of culture in opposition to Jesus? There's another thing that I I agree, it's kind of shocking. It's very disturbing to the modern mind to think about this. It also tells us that this world, this culture in opposition to Jesus, it has a leader, a leader. And friends, the leader is not a king, a president, a prime minister, a CEO. The Bible tells us about a real being sometimes called Satan, sometimes called the devil. And I know this sounds like madness to the modern mind, but Jesus apparently believed in this being and said that this culture in opposition to Jesus has a leader. And Jesus says, he's gonna be dealt with at the cross as well. He's gonna be cast out. Do you see that? It says, now... The ruler of this world will be cast out. It's kind of like this. The world passed judgment upon Jesus. The world looked at Jesus and said, you're bad. But it's just this, God the Father overturned that decision and said, no, my son is holy and pure. World, you are judged by what you did to Jesus. My son is not judged. And then he continues on in verse 32, where he says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. It's a very interesting idea behind that word for lifted up. Lifted up has two ideas in the ancient language. One idea has the sense of being raised up off the ground. The other sense is more of a symbolic sense. It has a sense of being exalted or enthroned. And I believe that in a very deliberate use of both senses of the world, Jesus says, when I am lifted up off the ground on the cross, I will be enthroned. I will be exalted. It's another way of him speaking of his glorification as he spoke before. 
And friends, Jesus Christ draws people to himself. Alexander McLaren, a great preacher of Victorian England, he said that, that, that Jesus and the preaching of the cross is like the magnet of Christianity. When Jesus draws people, he draws people by the cross, by his love, by his work on the cross, by the grace, by the forgiveness. That's all manifested at the cross of Jesus Christ. The, the cross is the magnet of Christianity. Now, th- this is a problem, friends. I have to be very honest with you. In some churches, they don't preach the cross. They present Jesus the moral teacher. And Jesus was a wonderful moral teacher. They, they, they present Jesus the kind man. And Jesus was a kind man. But he was more than all of that. He said, when I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all peoples to myself. Friends, we don't want a demagnetized Christianity. If the cross is the magnet of the Christian faith, then we don't want to demagnetize it. We don't want a scrap iron Christianity. We want a magnetic one that preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. And friends, here's the truth of it. Jesus draws people. I don't even think you understand how Jesus draws people. Jesus says, now I'll just give one example. And, and I kind of apologize for this example because this example is just from the United States. And I want you to know, Jesus draws people all over the world from every race, from, from every class, from, from every nation, from every language. Jesus draws people all over the world. But let me give you one example of how Jesus draws people in the United States of America. Now, in the United States, how many people do you suppose attend sporting events? Sports are pretty big in our society, aren't they? Sporting events. Well, it's about 470 million a year attend sporting events. And that's sporting events of all kinds, all kinds. That's about 9 million a week. Sporting events of all kinds, 470 million. 9 million a week. Do you know how many people attend some kind of house of worship in the United States a week? The estimates I read, 60 million. Now, some people say, well, that's down, that's up, this or that. But, but these are the statistics I read. I could give you the, the URLs if you care about the internet links. But friends, now, isn't it strange? Don't you think sports draws more people in the United States than houses of worship? You would think that from the culture, wouldn't you? It's not even close. It's not even close. Don't forget or neglect the ability of Jesus Christ to draw people unto himself and unto the communities that he founds. Verse 34. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. You see, the people who were listening to Jesus objected. They said, listen, we thought we read from the Old Testament scriptures that that the Messiah would never die, that he would reign forever. And friends, there's certainly passages in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, that speak of the Messiah reigning forever. And those passages are true, but what they neglected was they also neglected the passages in the Hebrew scriptures which speak of the Messiah suffering and dying as a sacrifice. Their Bibles, their scriptures were open, so to speak, to the passage to speak of his triumphal reign. But what about Psalm 22? What about Isaiah 53? What about the many other passages that speak of the Messiah's suffering? And Jesus tells them, no, no, no. 
I will die. I must die. There's an urgency. Matter of fact, he says in verse 35, a little while longer the light is with you. While you have the light, believe in the light. Jesus assured them, I am with you only a little while longer. The clock is ticking. You must decide. Friends, this is true, isn't it? We don't live forever. There's a time for us to put our trust in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did for us on the cross. We must believe on Jesus while the light is there because that light will not last forever. The Bible says that God's spirit will not always strive with man, that there comes a time where God says, you want to go in this direction? Fine. If you feel God tugging at your heart today, two things. First of all, be very thankful for that. Secondly, don't put it off. If you feel God drawing you to him today, now is the time to say, Jesus, I surrender to you. Jesus, I trust in who you are and what you did for me on the cross. Simply put, friends, you, you got to answer the phone while it's ringing. It does no good to pick up the phone when it's not ringing. When the phone is ringing, that's where you have to answer it. If God's calling your heart today, don't say, well, I'll have it tomorrow. I could do it the next day. I could do it any time. Listen, you got to do it while the light is there. Verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Friends, John is dealing with the great question, if Jesus was so right, if Jesus fulfilled all these things, why didn't more people believe in him? It's a true, it's a valid question. And obviously some people believed in him. John's going to tell us about some people who believed in him just in a few verses. Some people did, but why didn't more? And he explains it and says it's a fulfillment of prophecy using two quotations from Isaiah. That's Isaiah 53 verse 1 and Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. John explained that this was prophesied. That even though God was revealed to them, they didn't accept it. That even though uh, God had, had offered himself to them, their eyes were blinded and they did not receive him. So friends, here's the idea. If Jesus has revealed himself to you, do not reject him. Now, not everybody rejected him. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. There were more people that believed in Jesus at the time of his earthly ministry than let on. There were, if you want to use the phrase, secret believers. They believed in Jesus, they put their trust in him, but there was something not fully formed, not fully mature about their faith. They couldn't confess him. They couldn't declare their love and their allegiance to Jesus. Why couldn't they do it? Friends, isn't that a sobering verse in verse 43? You saw it. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. 
Do you remember just in a few verses before this, I didn't really talk about it, it was worthy to talk about, in verse 26, Jesus said something remarkable. He said that if anyone served him, they would receive honor from God. You ever thought, God honoring you? What, what greater thing could there ever be? You, you know, if an important person can honor you, now look, you could say, well, the honor from anybody means something, and it sure does mean something. But if somebody important, great, mighty, in authority, if they honor you, it means a lot. There must be nothing greater in all existence than to be honored by God. And Jesus said, if you serve me, my Father will honor you. It's a beautiful thing. But notice this. There were people, these secret disciples, they cared more about their reputation before man than they cared about their reputation before God. Now, friends, in one sense, I totally get this. What do you mean, do I get it? I've lived it. Haven't you? Because the person, I can intelligently say, okay, God, your approval means more to me than the approval of this person. Okay, I get that. But God, you're in heaven and I can't see you and they're right here in front of my face. It makes all the difference, doesn't it? I need to step back and say, there's something more, there's something greater to reality than what I see right in front of my face. And Jesus Christ, would you please help me to honor you and to fear you more than I fear man? Would you help me to desire the praise you might give more than the praise of man? We're going to begin now at verse 44 and go to the end of the chapter. But I need to tell you a little something about we read this last section. This is Jesus' last public words to the crowd in the Gospel of John. Starting at chapter 13, which we're going to get into next week, he's private with his disciples. And in these last words, Jesus is going to sum up many of the themes that he's spoken to the crowd before in the Gospel of John. Here we go. Ready for this? Verse 44. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Notice as this section begins in verse 44, Jesus just cries out. He shouts. Friends, Jesus didn't often shout, but here he shouts. He cries out, and what does he say? He cries out and he says, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and he who sees me sees he who sent me. But do you realize, again, wipe the blinders, wipe the, wipe the religious church fog from your eyes just for a moment. Here is a man claiming to be God. Isn't that bizarre? And if you can't back it up, you better not say it. If you can't back it up, either you're crazy or you're evil. But if you are, 
if you are God in human flesh, then you stand before humanity and simply tell the truth about yourself. When you see me, you have seen God. And verse 46, I have come into a li- as a light into this world. Uh, there's a choice between light and darkness. There's a choice, people. I brought the light. The darkness is out there. You're going to have to choose between the two. But, but I kind of want to end with this last idea of Jesus. Verse 47. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I've been thinking about that line from Jesus. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, friends, is it true that Jesus will judge the world? Yes, the Bible says so. Jesus himself says so. He says so again, just in a few verses. He says, at the same time, I did not come to judge the world. And as I was thinking about it, doesn't it occur to you that if the main work of God, if the most compelling work of God was to judge the world, then Jesus never needed to come from heaven to do that. He never needed to add humanity to his deity to judge the world. He could have just done it from a throne in heaven. He didn't need to go to all the trouble. He didn't have to come as a baby in Bethlehem. He didn't have to live 33 sinless years. He didn't have to endure the temptation in the wilderness. He didn't have to endure all that constant annoyance from his disciples. Friends, he didn't have to go through all that trouble to judge the world, but to save the world, he had to. And that's why Jesus delights to save, delights to open up the heart of God as big as it can be and to say, judgment is out there, but I have come, I have descended from heaven to earth, I added humanity to my deity and came as a man and walked among you and I'm gonna be lifted up upon a cruel cross to not only suffer its physical horrors, but even bigger sense, the spiritual horrors. All of that is there and it pleases me to do it if I can bring salvation to the world by doing it. Friends, this is your savior. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. And he came and did this to bring us the rescue we need. We need a rescue from the devil. We need a rescue from the culture around us that opposes Jesus. But you know who I need the greatest rescue from? Me. We say classically the Christian has three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The one that concerns me the most is the flesh me because nobody can torpedo my boat like I can so friends I say Jesus would you please come and rescue me would you please come and bring me your saving power I believe in you I believe in what you did for me on the cross Jesus here I am I trust in you you could say the same thing this morning you can have your own faith in Jesus Christ he didn't come to the world to judge you but to save you. He didn't need to go to all the trouble if it was just to judge. But he was happy to go through all the trouble in everything that it encompassed to bring rescue to you and I. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for your presence among us. I'm so grateful, Lord, that we think of Jesus here speaking to the crowd pouring out his heart about the love of God, warning them of the judgment to come, offering them rescue. Jesus, I pray that in a simple but powerful way, 
you would bring your rescue among us here this morning. So Lord, um, would you please speak to hearts that need to put their trust in you? And would you help them to do it in the name of Jesus? Amen.